1: And welcome to the New Books Networks Middle East Studies podcast. I'm Ruben Silverman, a researcher at Stockholm University's Institute for Turkish Studies. With me today is James H. Meyer. Fraser Meyer is an associate professor of history at Montana State University. His first book, Turks Across Empires: Marketing Muslim Identity in the Russian Ottoman Borderlands, eighteen fifty-six to nineteen fourteen, was published in twenty fourteen by Oxford University Press. Today, we will be talking about his new book, Red Star Over the Black Sea, Nazim Hikmet and His Generation, which has just been published by Oxford University Press. It looks at the life of the famous poet and others from his generation who crossed the borders between Turkey and the Soviet Union in the 1920s through the 1960s. So first off in these interviews, I like to get a little bit of background about authors. In your case. This book requires a great deal of language skill, so I'd be very interested in learning about your background, how you developed the Russian and the Turkish and Ottoman skills to deal with the sources you're using. How did you come to focus on these topics and on these languages, and um, what made you interested in the Russian and Ottoman empires and their aftermaths?
2: Okay, Reuben. Well, first of all, thank you very much for uh, having me on this podcast. I I appreciate it. Um, as so far as like how uh, I ended up getting interested in uh, Russia and Turkey, you know, part of it had to do with just um, kind of uh, chance, and and part of it had to do with things that were happening uh, at earlier stages in my life. So, I. Uh, I uh, moved to Turkey uh, shortly after I graduated from college and spent uh, seven years working as an English teacher in Istanbul. And at that point, I mean, when I finished college, uh, stepping into a university classroom again was the absolute last thing on my mind. So I did not go to Turkey with the intention of like one day becoming a professor of Islamic world history and specializing on Turkey and the Turkic world. Um, rather, I, I just happened to find a job I- in Turkey and ended up living there for seven years. So during that time, uh, I, uh, I learned Turkish and um, I, at that point, developed an interest in Turkish and Ottoman history. The Russian side of things had more to do with things that were happening in the world when I was in college. Uh, I graduated from university in 1991 and so you know um, first of all all the revolutions taking place in eastern europe in 1989 those were things that interested me a lot Um, everything that gorbachev was doing in the soviet union Um, and so when i started living in turkey in 1992 um, I, uh, I started traveling to Russia and the former Soviet Union. Um, I eventually found a, uh, a Russian tutor, uh, in Istanbul that I worked with for several years. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was that sort of combination of interests. And so once I was in graduate school, I started, you know, working more with Ottoman Turkish. And I started learning some of the Turkic languages that were spoken in the former Soviet Union. And so on the one hand, both of the books that I've written um, are, are products of the, the languages that I know, a variety of Turkic languages and Russian, but also um, kind of the stories behind both of these books, um, Turks Across Empires as well, my my first book. You know, these are the stories of people who cross borders and of uh, how somebody's experiences living abroad, maybe especially when they were younger, uh, end up affecting people's lives later on. Um, and this just has a lot to do, I think, with my, my own personal biography. Um, of spending time in Europe with my, my family when I, was, when I was a kid. Uh, a lot of that had to do with the fact that I ended up moving abroad after, after I finished college. Um, and so those are kind of deeper and more personal uh, interests of mine, these stories of, of people who cross borders. Um, and so that's how I kind of ended up uh, getting interested in, in Nazim. Um, I mean, of course, I'd known Nazim Hikmet's story when I was living in Turkey in the 90s. People mentioned him all the time to me. But, you know, I'd never really thought about writing a a book about him until uh, the summer of 2015. Um, My first book had come out the previous fall. Um, I hadn't really given a lot of thought to uh, writing a new book. Um, I just wanted to spend the summer of 2015 kind of going on a vacation. Uh, I spent a month in Russia and a month in Turkey, mainly traveling to places that I hadn't been to before. And uh, I was in a big bookstore in uh, in Istanbul uh, just looking for something Turkish to, to read, to take with me, um, and Turkish language, that is. And uh, I saw this book about Nazim Hikmet's experiences in Azerbaijan. And um, it wasn't... You know, the the book didn't blow me away or anything, but it was kind of interesting. But that's kind of what got me thinking is I I wonder if anybody had written about Nazim Hikmet, you know, kind of looking at sources that were not in Turkey or that looked at more at what he was doing in the former Soviet Union. And uh, that's kind of what got me started. But ultimately, it's these stories of of people who go places and do things in different countries and how that ends up affecting them later on.
1: Well, so you you touched on something that I wanted to come to, which is uh, Nasim Hikmet. I I want to talk a little bit about who he is, why he's important. He's a very well known figure in Turkey, and a lot's been written about him. But your book is very different, I think, in terms of the angle it approaches him at and the sources it uses. So maybe you could give us a little background about who this person is and how you're approaching him differently than at least in English. I think in Turkish too, past authors have looked at him. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks.
2: Um, Well, so Nazim Hikmet uh, was a writer, uh, mostly known as a poet. He was born in 1902 in the Ottoman Empire and died in Moscow in 1963. Um, He was well known. I mean, he's well known for his writing, uh, of course, but, but also he's well known for his dramatic personal life. Um, he uh, was a communist. Um, he lived in Moscow for about six years in the 1920s. And then Uh, Spent uh, approximately 14 years uh, behind bars uh, in Turkey uh, in the 1930s and uh, 40s, um, largely as a result of trumped up charges um, that were lodged against him because he was a a quite prominent uh, communist. Um, he, uh, he ended up escaping uh, from Turkey in 1951. He'd, he'd been released from prison uh, the year before. But in 1951, it became kind of clear he was being harassed again uh, by the by the Turkish government. Um, it looked like he was going to be drafted into the army as a private. Um, at this point, he was almost 50 years old. Uh, He'd had health problems. He became convinced, and and I think rightly so, that um, if he were drafted into the Turkish army in 1951, he probably wouldn't survive. Um, And so he decided to flee and fled on a motorboat. Uh, Originally, the idea was to get to Bulgaria. Uh, On the way to Bulgaria, uh, he ended up coming across a Romanian tanker and Romania, of course, was uh, in the Eastern Bloc, uh, uh, and um, they picked him up and and took him to Romania. And from Romania, he he made his way to the Soviet Union, where he ended up spending uh, the last 12 years of his life. And you're right, a lot has been written on Nazim. Uh, Hundreds of books have been written about Nazim Hikmet in Turkish. A number of other books have been written about him in other languages. Um, Prior to my book, Uh, there were two other uh, full biographies of Nazim that had been written uh, in English. So, you know, the question might be, well, (laughs) why does the world need another one of these books if we already have so many about this guy? Um, And, uh, well, kind of the most obvious difference uh, between my book and others is I I did a lot of research, archival research, especially uh, in Russia. So, Typically, uh, kind of the source material that's, that's used on Nazim are uh, Nazim's own writings and uh, the memoirs of Nazim's uh, friends and relatives and people who wrote about Nazim, people who knew him. And those, those are useful sources. I use those sources myself to a large degree uh, in this book, but I juxtapose these sources alongside uh, archival sources. And uh, in particular, I, I worked in three archives in Moscow, um, which had not been previously consulted in any of these books about Nazim. Um, and that was quite helpful, like one archive uh, called Argaspi, Uh, in Moscow uh, holds uh, paperwork from the Comintern and paperwork relating to foreign communists living in the Soviet Union. Uh, There's a personal file on Nazim that's over 300 pages long. But then there are also just lots of other files that mention Nazim Pikmet specifically by name and discuss him Uh, in a lot of other files uh, there. Um, Argos B also has a lot of information about other communists, including a lot of quite obscure figures who were Nazim's classmates, um, other Turkish communists who were uh, studying in Moscow uh, with Nazim in the, in the 1920s. Um, And so it was, Really, in that archive, uh, where I started seeing Nazim in this in this broader context of uh, not just what Nazim was doing in isolation from everybody, but also like what Nazim had in common with other. Uh, Turkish communists, other communists studying uh, at this university in Turkey, uh, Communist University for the Toilers of the East, which is where Nazim uh, was studying and working for much of the 1920s. What, what did Nazim have in common with this broader group of people? And what can the broader experiences of this generation uh, tell us about changing attitudes toward uh, borders and the people who cross them? So, you know, that kind of gets it. So yes, the archives are different. Uh, I also worked with an archive at Argali in uh, Moscow, where uh, I worked with Nazim's personal papers, letters that have been written in Nazim. Um, no previous biographer of Nazim had worked with these sources uh, either. Uh, I also worked at archives in uh, Istanbul and in Amsterdam and in, in Washington, D.C. So you know, the, the, the more obvious difference is, yeah, there's there's a lot more archival stuff and especially archival stuff from uh, the Soviet Union. So that's a big difference. Um, but I'd say probably even more important than that would be um, just kind of my perspective uh, on Nazim and seeing Nazim and others from his generation. So this group of people who were born at the turn of the 20th century and came of age in the early 1920s. Um, what Nazim Hikmet has in common with this this broader uh, group of individuals, and what collectively their stories can tell us uh, about the 20th century. So that's that's quite a different way of looking at Nazim, who is typically discussed in terms of his writing, which of course makes a lot of sense, and also in terms of his politics. Well, you know, Nazim's writing and his politics are both important to me as well. And I I write about these subjects in the book, too. But the the broader perspective is on Nazim's border crossing and the border crossings of many others from Nazim's generation who, like Nazim, ended up finding themselves in Moscow in the 20s. People Uh, who were born in the Ottoman Empire like Nazim, and then who, like Nazim, often made their ways back and forth between the Soviet Union and Turkey uh, for much of the rest of their lives.
1: Well, you know, one of the people you focus on um, besides Nazim is uh, Shevkatsuri Aydemir. And, you know, I, I was vaguely aware of him, and I was aware that he had followed this life trajectory from being interested in pan-Turkism, the sort of thing you're talking about in your first book, to communism, which you're talking about in this book. But I had not really appreciated until I read this book how common a trajectory that was from, say, pan-Turkism to communism. And so for me, that was a real eye-opener. And I thought maybe you could talk a little bit about this and maybe just more generally what drew people like him, people like Nazim, others as well. To communism in the 1920s. Yeah, yeah, good question. Um,
2: so typically, and you know, a lot of folks from Nazim's generation, it's interesting in the you know in the 1920s and 30s, they're obliged to write these uh, party autobiographies when they're in the Soviet Union. Later on in life, they kind of graduate to writing memoirs about their early experiences. Uh, in the Soviet Union um, and in these memoirs uh, typically people describe their own pasts in terms of ideology and you know that's what eventually you know got them into uh, the Communist Party of course in the Soviet Union and you know they, they see their own pasts largely in uh, ideological uh, terms and you um, of course, you know, this was a very ideological time in uh, in the 1920s and, and 30s. Uh, at that time, too, uh, Nazim and, and many from his generation saw what they were doing in ideological terms. Um, but I suggest in this book that there may have been other reasons um, why people were drawn to communism or why people would have been drawn uh, to live in the Soviet Union, so um, one thing I do is when I when I first start writing, it's in uh, chapter five of this book when Nazim arrives in Moscow uh, for the first time in the early twenties with a group of friends that that uh, he's been traveling with. Um, when when he gets there, I, I start looking at well, who are these people who were you know, also at this university and from Turkey, uh, who were alongside Nazim. And, you know, in the 1920s, Nazim's experiences in the Soviet Union, you know, largely focused on his connections to sort of well-known uh, Soviet cultural figures like Mayakovsky and Meyerhold and stuff that Nazim interacted with, but really, you know, the the people alongside him, the other students at at, at Communist University, the ones that I, I think had in many ways a, a larger uh, impact uh, on him, and um, you know, you you look at the other university uh, students who were at this university and how they ended up. Um, you know, a lot of them had had sort of connections to Russia that preceded uh, the October Revolution. Uh, A number of the the Turkish students uh, in Moscow in the 1920s uh, had grown up in sort of borderland districts, uh, you know, on the Ottoman Russian border, very sort of close to the Russian border. Maybe they had relatives on the other side of the border. Maybe they had a personal history of living on the other side of the border. And, you know, this was actually quite common. And, you know, I had always sort of assumed with respect to like Turkish Communist Party members who, you know, ended up in the Soviet Union, I'd always assumed, well, They were communists first, and then they went to the Soviet Union because they were communists. Well, there were some people like that, of course, but what I wasn't prepared to find was just so many stories of people who had Turks, who had ended up in Russia and then became communists. So lots of former Ottoman POWs uh, who had basically, you know, needed to sign up with someone in in order to get away from their prison camps in the middle of Russia, Um, a lot of them ended up signing up with the Red Army. Um, That didn't necessarily mean they were doing it because of an ideological faith, specifically in communism. They needed to sign up with someone in in order to somehow get home someday or fight their way out of of where they were or attach themselves to some sort of broader army or, or organization. Um, and similarly, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, Pan-Turkists. I found that a lot of people, and uh, Shevket Suray Idemir is one, and, and there are a lot of individuals uh, as well, who, if they had been active, if they were active during the Young Turk era in, you know, political or newspaper circles or um, intellectual circles, more often than not. Those circles had been Turkist and pan-Turkist ones, not socialist circles. Um, the one exception to that rule would be a fellow called Shefi uh, um, who would later go on to become an important figure in the Turkish Communist Party. But he, he had been involved in socialist circles, but he's really just kind of the exception that proves the rule. The, 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 rule. Um, the, the great majority of people who would go on to be communists in Turkey in the 20s um, had, from an ideological standpoint, come from 180 degrees away from that, um, from Turkism and, and Pan-Turkism. So that suggests to me that you know, maybe there's, even though people from this generation tended to see everything they did in ideological terms, that maybe it wasn't only ideology um, that had led these people um, to communism or to the Soviet Union. Um, Pan-Turkism and communism, yes, in ideological terms, were very different from one another. What they had in common was border cross. Um, And from that perspective, I don't see it as so surprising that people who had been Turkish and pan-Turkists a few years earlier uh, got involved uh, with communism, uh, or that those who found themselves uh, living in the Soviet Union would themselves become communists, even if it hadn't been communism that had originally brought them to the USSR. So, um, you know, while kind of the the tendency in these memoirs that are written decades later is to put all of these activities in ideological terms. Um, I see this more as ideological discourses, but there were probably all sorts of reasons that led people to the communist party or led people to the USSR.
1: Well, so in the case of Nazim Hikmet, he ends up in the 1920s in Moscow and like you say, he, he's a border crosser and you argue that his crossing borders really is integral to the type of poet he is becoming. Um, so maybe you could talk about this a bit. How did this experience in the 1920s affect him, affect his his style that he was developing at the time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well,
2: you know, Nazim ended up in uh, Moscow as a result of a number of different coincidences of which, if, if any had sort of worked out differently, he could have ended up in Kars or um, Tbilisi or or Baku. Um, and this this was something that that interested me uh, quite a bit. You know, when Nazim and his friend Vala Nureddin are they're traveling through Anatolia. Uh, and uh, and the caucuses, on the one hand, it seems like it's just they're drifting in the winds, like wherever the wind kind of takes them, they they end up going. They don't have a really strong sense of direction. But on the other hand, they they're they're clearly looking for something. And everyone that they meet that they respect, that seems intelligent, that seems like they have something to teach them. All of those people are interested in one way or another uh, in the Soviet Union, and they may not necessarily be communists themselves, but they, they're, they're excited. They want to go see what, what communism looks like. And this is something then that, that, that also comes to, to Nazim and his friend Vala. They become very, they're, not, they're not communists when they first enter Georgia, which had just come under Bolshevik control. But they're very interested in seeing um, what uh, what communism what communism looked like, and in that respect, um, you know, Nazim and, and Vala had had something in common with a lot of their later classmates in Moscow. In those because those people too had not been communists when they'd first come to um, the Soviet Union. So um, you know, Nazim sort of uh, ends up in uh, uh, Georgia uh, through uh, a series of coincidences. Uh, but he and his friend Bala—they're—they're they're out of money. They—they they have no place to stay. Um, the Turkish Communist Party, which was operational, you know, was founded in the Soviet Union in uh, Azerbaijan after Azerbaijan had come under Bolshevik control. Um, the Turkish Communist Party uh, had set up a newspaper in Batumi, Georgia, and they gave Nazim and Vala jobs. Uh, they gave them a place to live uh, later because they had been involved with the Communist Party. That's how Nazim and Vala and Shevkets Uriye Aydemir end up going to Moscow uh, and, and, and going to this university. All of these opportunities, especially for a foreign communist, Came first and then Nazim and Vala uh, became communists. So um yes, uh maybe it was just, you know, ideological zeal. Uh but maybe it was also that um, by uh, working with the Turkish Communist Party, working for the newspaper that the Turkish Communist Party was publishing in Batumi, you know, that gave them jobs, that, get, that gave uh, uh, them a roof over their heads. You know, all of that kind of came first. Um, and then they, they joined the party. And this is something that I, I, I saw a lot of among people from Nazim's generation. Like, a lot of them didn't even have very specific ideas as to what communism really was. I mean, communism was a new thing and it, it wasn't, you know, necessarily uh, completely understood by everyone who considered themselves a communist or was involved in a communist movement. Um, they'd gotten, they'd joined the Communist Party uh, for a variety of reasons and that was also the case with uh, Nazim and uh, and his friends. So, um Yes, I'm, I'm sure ideology had had something to do with the attraction of communism. Of course, it did. It would be strange if it didn't. But I also think that, you know, maybe this doesn't need to be seen only in terms of ideology. And by looking at somebody in a more biographical way, perhaps we can kind of see some of the the other advantages that joining the Communist Party may have brought an individual at that time.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
1: in that same note, uh, when he comes back to uh, Istanbul in the late 20s, 30s, he misses out on a lot of the uh, the well, early, early Stalinists and the purges, all these types of things. He's missing out on those in Moscow. But he is in Istanbul. He is in Turkey. He is participating in debates that are happening, uh, the literary scene that's happening there. So maybe we can talk about this a little bit. Once he was back in Turkey, how did his work reflect or challenge uh, his communist ideas, his communist values?
2: Yeah, well, you know, he... um... He was kicked out of the Turkish Communist Party uh, shortly after returning to uh, Istanbul. The different dates are given for this, but it looks like it was 1929. A- at least from 1929 onward, he's, he's not involved in Turkish Communist Party activities uh, in Turkey. Nazim was really, I mean, so he was, he was known uh, as uh, a communist. Uh, he started getting arrested on various occasions in the, in the 1930s uh, for his supposed involvement in uh, underground uh, activities. Um, he does not appear to have been involved in any underground activities at those times. He was much and, and wasn't, in fact, I mean, he was outspoken in defending himself. When he'd get arrested, he'd go and and uh, give these speeches in favor of freedom of thought, freedom of expression. He'd say, yes, I'm a communist, but that shouldn't be a crime. I'm not doing anything. And, you know, he was outspoken in defending himself. Otherwise, uh, in the 1930s, you know, he, he was not going out of his way to talk about politics, but he did end up angering quite a bit of uh influential people in Turkey by, by writing about literature. Um and so you know he had this uh famous um series of columns that he wrote in a journal called Resimli I, uh, called uh Smashing the Idols, where kind of one by one he would attack, often in quite quite personal terms, um, rather famous, but older, uh, Ottoman writers, people, people who had, you know, were, were decades removed from, from producing their, their best work. And, you know, this kind of bare knuckled literary debate was, was something that was common in Moscow in the 1920s. But, not not quite so common in Istanbul in the 30s, where a little bit more deference to one's elders was uh, expected. Um, and, uh, you know, this was done at a time when uh, there was a lot more mixing between the political and cultural worlds of Turkey than there is today. A lot of poets and writers were sitting in parliament or had uh, other important positions in the government. These were politically Connected people uh, that Nazim was infuriating uh, in the twenties. Um, so part of me thinks that um, you know maybe part of the reason why Nazim attracted so much attention from the authorities in the thirties. Um, Sure, maybe some of it had to do with his politics, but I think personally, he just angered a lot of people uh, as well uh, through uh, through his writing about other writers who, again, were sort of influential, uh, powerful um, people. Um, Yeah, I mean, so he then becomes, you know, a, a target. He served uh, a little over a year in prison in uh, 1933 and 34. And, uh, you know, whereas I, I, I think his poetry at that time was not something that, you know, he was interested in making terribly Political. I mean, his poetry does change in the 1920s uh, when he when he gets to Istanbul, changes wherever he goes, you know, whenever he goes to a new place or crosses a border of some kind, including the border between imprisonment and freedom, you know, his his poetry always changes. Um, but once we get into that into the 1930s, um, you know he's he's writing some of his best work, But at the same time, he's he's also uh, kind of coming uh, up against increased attacks from various authorities uh, in Turkey at this time. And I'm not sure how much of that had to do with the fact that he was interested in communism. And I'm not really sure how much of that had to do with the fact that he just angered so many powerful people, um, through the way that he wrote about other writers.
1: Well, so in the 38, I guess it is, he is prosecuted again and is sentenced to jail and this time for what, 12 years, 13 years. Um, yeah. So how does this, how does this affect him, this long stint in prison and how does it affect his, his personal life, his, his art, his, his work? Uh, Yeah. What is the effect Well, um, it seems pretty
2: clear that, that early on, so, you know, he was incarcerated in 1938 and, um, it, he was eventually sentenced, uh, to 28 years in prison, a little over 28 years in prison for allegedly, uh, trying to stir up a mutiny in both the army and the Navy, which were both just completely trumped up, uh, charges. At first, uh, it it seems pretty clear that he he thought that this was going to be a short time. Um, every every other time he'd he'd been uh you know arrested or or even the times that he'd been convicted, it, it had started out with a big a large number of years, and then it had always been kind of whittled down. So, um, you know, he'd been uh, charged, uh, you know, and and sentenced to fifteen years in nineteen twenty five. Uh, in absentia. Uh, that was eventually uh, erased through an amnesty. You know, earlier on, uh, he'd served a little over a year in prison in 1933, 34, whereas, you know, his original sentence had been quite a bit longer than that. And, it, you know, he seemed pretty confident in 1938, 39, 40, uh, that he'd be getting out relatively soon, that he wouldn't be serving 28 years. And, um, However, as time passes, it becomes, I think, clearer to him as the years pass that um, they're not going to just let him out again, um, that he could end up spending decades uh, behind bars. You ask about his writing. You know, as I mentioned earlier, I, I, I found that his writing changed everywhere he went, wherever. And I, one thing that I do in the book is I, I try to connect um, these changes that occur in his writing uh, to his setting, wherever he happens to be, the people that he's around, um, the circles that, that he's in. And I would say my favorite writing from, from Nazim is the, the stuff that he was writing in the 1940s, um, which is a time when he'd, he'd largely lost hope uh, of getting out in prison anytime soon you know, his early years in prison after 38, you know, he's constantly trying to get out. He's writing letters to people. He's appealing to people. He's writing his lawyer. He's doing all these things trying to get out. Um, And then after about, you know, you get into the mid to late forties and he's just focused on survival and making the best out of his circumstances. Uh, He starts Interviewing some of his other prisoners and and using their material uh, as his material for for writing uh, new poetry and his his audience really shrinks you know so this is this is somebody who Um, was quite well known in in Turkey in the the early 1930s, but since 1936, he hadn't been allowed to uh, write under his own name or publish uh, under his own name. And now that he's in prison, uh, really the only people that are reading uh, what he does are a couple of the more literary minded people that that he knows in prison, other writers, uh, Orhan Kemal, people like that. And then his wife, uh, Piraye, um, a couple of friends that Piraye shows these materials to. But you know his, his audience is in sort of the single digits or low du- double digits at this point. And there's a simplicity um, to his, his poetry from that time. Um, like Yashamaya Dyer, you know on living one of his more famous poems was was written during that time, and you know yeah that that kind of simplicity uh just personally speaking it's uh, it's a it's of, of the various styles that that Nazim adopted over the course of his life that's the one that appeals to me the most and i I think a lot of that just has to do with the fact that he had a very small reading audience uh, at that time. And he was writing these poems for himself and his loved ones, his immediate loved ones, and maybe for posterity as well. But it it definitely had uh, quite an impact on his poetry, just like every crossing of borders in this man's life had um, over the course of his life, going to a new place. um, His style of poetry would, would typically change.
1: Well, and while he's in prison, um, like, like I said, he's missing events that are happening in the Soviet Union. And one thing you're doing in the book is you're showing these other Turkish communists who, unlike him, are in the Soviet Union still. And I'm wondering um, if you, what kind of conclusions you draw from looking at their lives, the lives of these other Turkish communists. Um, what can we gain from thinking about them in terms of this larger generation that he's part of. I just
2: found uh, the stories of these individuals to be to be quite um, to be quite interesting, and also they they help to kind of fill in some of the gaps when Nazim is is back in Turkey um, for basically twenty one years uh, in the in the thirties and forties and before he escapes in uh, in nineteen fifty one. So by by looking at his generation, there's still sort of action going on in my book and stories that I'm relating uh, of other Turkish communists who are still in uh, the Soviet Union at that time, which kind of creates a more organic way of talking about some of the political changes and purges and stuff that's happening uh, in the USSR, uh, while Nazim uh, is, is in Turkey. So, You know, I I originally wasn't really planning on uh, making this about Nazim Hikmet and his generation, but... Once I started researching, so I spent nine months uh, in Moscow during the 2016-2017 academic year, and then I went back for a month in 2019 and did some mop-up research. And, you know, at first, uh, you know, I was thinking I would make this just a more traditional biography of Nazim Hikmet, you know, bring in a couple of other people whenever it seemed appropriate. But just once I saw the parallels of between Nazim and others that had first gone over in the 20s and then uh, continue living in the Soviet Union. Some of them come back to Turkey, some of them go back to Turkey and then go back again to the Soviet Union like, uh, like Nazim Hikmet did. I just felt like, well, this enables me now to kind of talk about these people's lives, not just in terms of a bunch of individual lives, but more as the story of a generation um And, um, you know, I found that by looking at the broader experiences of these individuals, because all of them, or at least the vast majority of them, when they first go to uh, the USSR in the 20s and 30s, well, in the 20s, I should say, it's, it's specifically because they're foreigners that they're welcomed and they have so many opportunities. Nazim shows up in Moscow, it's like, oh... Here's this guy, he's he's Turkish, and he's come here to Moscow to learn about communism, and he can take this back to his own land one day. And you know, all these individuals, it's it's because they're foreigners that they, they find places to live, they find jobs, they get opportunities to study in the Soviet Union. Lots of opportunities come their way specifically because they are foreigners. And then in the purges in the 1930s, Specifically because they're foreigners, a lot of these people end up getting shot or sent to prison camps. Um, And what had been the the source of so many opportunities for them uh, ended up being the source of, you know, real problems, sometimes lethal uh, problems. And you know, Nazim didn't go through that, as, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, you know, of course, you know, Nazim returned to uh, Turkey in 1928, didn't go back until 1951. Uh, he missed the, the purges. But he too, because he had previously been a border crosser, because he had lived in the Soviet Union, this made him the subject of suspicion in Turkey. And so, you know, I found it really interesting that all these individuals of Nazim's generation, really the last generation of Ottomans, people who'd grown up in an empire, how do the people who run empires, how do they see borders? They saw borders as sources of opportunities. And this was something that Nazim and people from his generation, even though maybe politically they were very anti-imperial, I think intellectually and in the ways in which they perceive the world, that was still in largely imperial terms and that this is reflected in how they saw uh, the borders. However, all of them in the 1930s start feeling these doors closing behind them, uh, behind their backs. So what happens when a generation of people that grows up seeing the border in a certain way Um, and then in their own experiences uh, have so many opportunities precisely because they have crossed borders. What happens to them once internationally, and this is taking place in Turkey, this is taking place in the Soviet Union, It's taking place all over there. What happens when people start seeing open borders as a sign of weakness? When people start seeing border crossers as no longer uh, opportunities, but but as you know, as as something dangerous and something you need to be afraid of. Uh, what happens then when when this is occurring with a, with a whole generation of people? And that's what interested me about Nazim's generation. That they 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 went through the 1920s, kind of still seeing the the world in in terms of crossing borders and open frontiers. And they benefit from this. Uh, but then a lot of them are then victimized by this very same thing uh, in, the, in the
1: 1930s. That makes sense. Uh, well, And with Nazan, when he gets out of prison, like you said, he escapes to the Soviet Union and then he spends this last decade of his life in a sense, stuck behind these borders, he can't travel beyond the borders of the Iron Curtain, let's say, and so this makes him have to make a sacrifices and you know to make a, be very careful about what he says, who he says things to, how he presents himself. So I'm wondering how you think about this. What sort of success did he have in the USSR? What challenges did he face and like i said what sort of compromises did he have to make in order to live without this really this possibility of crossing borders easily anymore
2: well, I will say this. I mean, sure, the the vast majority of Nazim's travels between 1951 and 1963 were within the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc. Uh, although, uh, I mean, he did travel to China and Sweden and Austria. And um, France? I forget. Later on, yeah. Uh, uh, later on, uh, he traveled to uh, France and Italy uh, as well. That was in, uh, I believe, in 1960. Uh, after 1960 but yeah he did but yes initially he was traveling largely just uh through the uh eastern bloc uh as as you mentioned he did kind of have to be in some ways careful uh about what what he was saying you know i mean so nazim arrived in the soviet union in uh, june of 1951, Stalin died in March of 1953. So during that period of time, Nazim published very, very little poetry. Um, I counted, I think, six poems of his that were published uh, during that time. Um, and this is, you know, this is someone who was just enormously productive throughout most of his life. Um, he was always writing a lot. Um, even when he had, was in Turkey and was consistently being harassed by various authorities, he still wrote a lot. Wrote very little the first couple of years, roughly, when he was living in uh, a Stalinist. Uh, Soviet Union and his writings during that period too like quite sort of heavy-handedly political in a way that was unusual uh, for Nazim Hikmet after Stalin dies you know, there's a cultural thaw in the Soviet Union takes place in the mid uh, 50s Nazim begins writing more um, I'm not really sure if he would see his writing in compromised, Terms, you know, from that period of time, he, I think, Nazim himself would would probably say that, you know, he he had been a communist in Turkey and he was a communist in the Soviet Union, and that you know he himself, I think, probably saw what he was doing largely in ideological terms. So he, I, I don't think, would really see um, himself as having made compromises. I mean, even the stuff that he was publishing when Stalin was alive, he wrote a play called uh, A Story About Turkey, which was just very sort of crudely socialist, realist, and, you know, I mean, not, not, not a great work. But even that, you know, I think Nazim probably agreed with the sentiments of that play, even if okay, it, it wasn't a brilliant work of, of art. So I, I think he felt like, um, I mean, his life in the Soviet Union was in many ways quite a, a good one. Um, he had a, a, a nice apartment. He had a, a good dacha. Uh, outside of Moscow, he, he traveled a lot again, mostly throughout Eastern Europe, but yes, uh, in the fifties also going to China, Sweden and Austria, and then later on going to, uh, to, to France and, uh, Italy and Cuba, uh, as well. You know, yes, he, uh, he didn't really produce a lot when Stalin was alive, then he starts producing more uh, from kind of the mid-50s uh, onwards. He's quite prolific. He ends up finishing uh, human landscapes uh, from, uh, from my country, uh, you know his, his masterpiece that he'd been working on for, for decades. I think the compromises, if you were to ask him like, what the biggest compromises were, they may have kind of more involved his personal life. He had a common law wife, Munavar Andac, who was still in Istanbul with their son, Mehmet. They're corresponding back and forth, yet at the same time, he's living with uh, Dr. Galina Kalisnikova, who was his live-in physician, but was also his lover for from most of the 1950s. Um, then later in the '50s, as Nazim is still kind of involved with these two women, Muniver and Galina, he falls in love with a third, uh, Vera Tuliakova, who became his fifth wife. So, the, the issues surrounding Nazim's life—I, I, you know, that the the problems or the maybe the, the the compromises or the things that he had to do or felt that he had to do. Um, uh, Later on in the Soviet Union, I think had more to do with his personal life, um, and than, than, than with um, than with politics. Um, I, I I do believe that that Nazim was also quite quite shaken by uh, Khrushchev's, uh secret speech denouncing Stalin. Uh, Nazim doesn't, you know, of course, most of Nazim's political contacts in the Soviet Union had been Stalinists um, and his political benefactors in the Soviet Union, the people who'd helped him uh, emigrate to the Soviet Union in 1951 had been Stalinists and been people who'd been associated with the old times to sort of see these people removed from their positions you know that 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 was a little bit shocking for for Nazim. He ended up spending uh, a considerable of time outside the Soviet Union. He eventually got in nineteen fifty six Polish citizenship and started spending more time in the in the Eastern Bloc. I I, I think seeing some of his old friends uh, humiliated by the party and in the name of the party, that's something that that I think also uh, kind of jarred him uh, in his later years. So kind of his, yeah, his relationship with the party and I, I think his relationship with the the women in his life were, you know, these were all things that uh, I think complicated his his life in, in ways that did not make him or anybody else a happier person.
1: Well, uh, I guess, you know, you, you touch on what I wanted to conclude with, actually, which is that one thing I took from your book is a much more uh, s- subtle understanding of Nazim Hikmat. Because I think the way I've learned about him, the way he's remembered is as this you know, romantic communist. And I think romantic communist in some ways means like, oh, he wasn't a Stalinist, right? He's part of this more free thought period. And I think one thing you show is that it's just... It's never that. It's never that simple. The real guy, his real experiences, what type of communist he was, how he related to communism. So I just wonder if you can talk a little bit about this issue of how he's remembered, um, and maybe also all these documents you're looking at, how they how they contrast with the way he or some of the other people of his generation are remembered. Uh, what sort of contradictions, what sort of interesting things have you come across as you've been doing your work?
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. Um, there, there is sort of a tendency to see Nazim as this sort of democratic communist or, you know, kind of anti-Stalinist, more of a liberal communist. And that wasn't really the case. I mean, the, the 1950s in Eastern Europe were, after Stalin's death, uh, really kind of dominated by these struggles between sort of old guard kind of Stalinist communists and then other communists who saw themselves as more reform uh, types. And in every instance, Nazim allied himself with the old guard, with the Stalinists. And again, that kind of makes sense. The people that um, Nazim had turned to in 1951 when he first arrived in the Soviet Union they had been, you know, these were people who'd come into positions of authority in the Comintern, and the Turkish Communist Party and in the Writers Union, you know, who had come of, you know, come up through the ranks under Stalin, you know, and so yes, uh, he he wasn't the kind of liberal, romantic, uh, democratic communist uh, that he's typically uh, seen as being, but he's someone who uh, sort of had to. Do what he had to do um, in uh the 1950s and 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 early 60s. And, you know, I th- I think he he realized that he had to be careful. I mean, he certainly understood that even in his early years when when he was back in the Soviet Union under under Stalin. You know, just trying to maneuver um these these different political developments that are occurring in the Soviet Union was something that, you know, took took some some time and some some attention and um, and skill you you asked uh, about kind of how Nazim Hikmet is 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 seen today um, and how he's remembered yeah I mean one of the one of the arguments that I make in the book is that uh, you know he's not just a literary figure he's he's an historical figure and he's someone who for decades was Politically radioactive among some people in Turkey, and with the end of the Cold War, he became a much less uh, divisive figure. Indeed, in in two thousand and nine, when Nazim's Turkish citizenship was restored through an act of Parliament, I mean, this occurred at a time when the Justice and Development Party had a majority in Parliament. Yet, nevertheless, this this vote was taken, and uh, his citizenship was restored. So. Nazim, on the one hand, is is someone that um, I think matters to a lot of people far beyond his writing. You know, he's somebody that a lot of people associate with earlier times in 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 their lives, maybe less complicated times. But something else that I think is is interesting about Nazim Hikmet is that maybe kind of an indication that. You know, even the most uh, serious uh, political divides uh, can, over time, eventually be healed. Even someone like Nazi Mikmet, who was such a divisive figure for, for decades uh, in Turkey, uh, has turned into a relatively mainstream uh, sort of figure. Uh, maybe that's a sign that, that, that other political divides can, can be overcome as well.
1: Well, I mean, the book, I I thought that the book was an incredible book. I learned an amazing amount from it, both about Nazim Hikmet, who I I thought I knew a little bit about before reading, but also just about so many details, controversies, interactions from this time period. So I really hope people will go, go find the book, read the book, because we've only touched the surface of all the things you discuss in it. And, um, the, the last thing I'd like to ask you is just, uh, where are you going from here? Are you just taking a break after this project or have you turned your sights on some new project?
2: Well, yes and no, you know, so I, I, I mentioned earlier that after I finished my first book, I just took a vacation and I I was planning on doing the same thing, uh, this time, but, you know, I recently bought a house, uh, in Montana, uh, and, uh, I kind of figured, well, this time I I just kind of want to uh, uh, stay at home this summer and uh, read and think and uh, maybe not do any travels. Last summer, uh, summer of uh, 2022, uh, I was in Istanbul doing research. And and now, of course, you know, at the BOA and the BCA, you can just get a lot of stuff, you know, scanned onto a CD. Uh, And uh, so I I had hundreds of documents um, relating uh, to uh, Russians in Istanbul uh, during the interwar years. And uh, school got out uh, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, since then I've I've been kind of reading through uh, these documents, and I just got really drawn into them. So uh, I don't know what I'm going to be doing next, but for now I've gotten kind of interested in uh, so-called White Russians and other Russians who were hanging out uh, in Turkey uh, in the twenties and thirties. Um, so I don't know if anything's going to come with that, come from that. Uh, but that's something that I've been kind of reading up on, uh, now and, uh, I've gotten quite interested. Uh, so I've, I've ordered a number of, uh, some of the secondary literature on this topic, see what the others have written on and see if maybe I would have anything to contribute to that.
1: Well, I mean that to me, that sounds great. And as this and your previous book show, you certainly have the, uh, the the linguistic skills necessary to tell that kind of story. So I'll be looking forward to that project. Ah, Thank you. Well, thank you very much. And thank you for taking your time to talk with me today.
2: Well, Ruben, really, uh, it's my pleasure. Uh, Thank you very much for uh, having me on and to everyone who's taken the time to uh, listen this far.